The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. Support your healthy CoQ10 levels and blood pressure with two chews a day. Visit RadioBeatsBeets.com and save 15% with promo code DEAL. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm Jason Lewis, the producer of the From the Shadows podcast. Tonight, I'm pleased to bring to you two very special guests who are friends of the From the Shadows podcast crew and have taken time from their busy schedule to give us this insightful interview. It is my pleasure to bring to you actor, stuntman, and former professional wrestler, Chris Hahn. And our other guest is a director writer, and visual effects producer who has such credits to his name as Boogeyman 3, Axe Giant The Wrath of Paul Bunyan, and my personal favorite big bug movie, Mosquito, and the highly anticipated Escape from Death Block 13. Ladies and gentlemen, we have Gary Jones with us tonight. Without further ado, let me turn you over to your host, Shane Grove, so that we can get started with this insightful roundtable-style interview. Welcome to the From the Shadows podcast. I'm your host, Shane Grove, and today's episode, we're going to wel- we're welcome two very special guests. Uh, you don't agree with me, special oh, guests? Oh, I agree one? with you 100%. Okay. okay. <laughs> so uh, our guests today are, uh, let's, let's count down. Former professional wrestler, current stuntman, um, current, uh, can we say bodybuilder? Are you currently? Well, I'm not currently, yeah, okay. I guess you'd say. Well, he's, built, he's working on his body. It's not. It's not <laughs> uh, and uh, an actor, uh, Chris Hahn, Man, uh, North Central Ohio, Mansfield's own Chris Hahn. Thank you. And then we also have acclaimed uh, director, producer, writer, visual effects artist, Gary Jones, who's also from the area. Howdy, howdy. Thanks, guys, for uh, for coming in here today and uh, talking with us. Cool. Thanks for having us. It's great to have you guys here. Um, being a big fan of movies, um, especially horror genre films, obviously. Um, you know, I think a lot of people who enjoy films have no idea how a film is actually made. And uh, I got the, uh, the privilege to come over to one of Gary and Chris's new films going to be coming out. I'll let them explain that here in a little bit. And got to see uh, how a movie's made and get to be in a c- couple scenes. Um, very interesting. It was it was one of those things that uh, I had no idea how movies were really made. So, uh, Gary, you want to give us, uh, just the, the people who are listening, just a little bit of an outline of how you, how you make a movie and how hard it is to make a movie. And, that, that was the thing that kind of threw me is that how many different times you have to do a scene to get it right. And, uh, 
and the different angles and the special effects. So. Well, you probably saw. I was figuring out as we went along. I don't know how to make movies. We just make it up as we go along. But. No, actually, um, it's kind of interesting because, you know, we're, um, we started shooting the movie. Um, and we got pretty much through our production period of the shooting, we were starting to uh, put together all the, um, the second unit and the pickup shoots, all the little bits and pieces that we, we fill in to the main shoot. But basically, you know, making movies is, um, there's like a recipe or there's like, there's like a game plan you follow. And all movies are kind of done this way. You know, you, you start out with a script and, you know, you go through the basis of planning it all, figuring out what you need, doing your casting, pick your locations put together a shooting schedule, figure out, well, how are you going to cover a scene? How many setups and shots? And basically, you break it down like that, and you have to get all these pieces of the puzzle. And, you know, going through production, for me as a, as a filmmaker, I always read the script, and, and I watch the movie in my head. And I go, I'm watching it, and I figure out, okay, that's a close-up, that's a medium, you cut to this, you move to that. So as I play the movie in my head, as I'm reading it or writing it, then I sit down and draw like thumbnail storyboards of like where all the shots are. And then when I get that finished, I look at it and go, oh, this is, this is 25 different setups, camera setups to get that, that coverage. And so you really kind of, it's a breakdown like that. Um, the thing that for me that always works the best is figure out, you know, I watch that movie in my head and I figure out what's, what's the least amount I need to do to get that done. Because you got the thing about if you're building a set, well, how much of this set do you build? You know, it's also about a budget. You want to like spend as little as possible to get the biggest return. So I go, well, if I'm not seeing the ceiling, don't build the ceiling, right? So I try to look at it from that that point of like, what, what what's the minimal amount I need to tell the story to to uh, make things work, and then kind of just start breaking it down and bringing the different crew people in that do the different jobs and and hiring the different people and putting them together. So it's really there's like a, it's a game plan. It's a, it's a real battle. It's like fighting a war. You know, you got to, you got to plan it all out. And the key to all of it is, you can, you know, you, you have to plan. It. You have to have everything there. But then once you actually start shooting, that's it. You know, the clock is ticking. You only have so much time in a day, so much time in a location, so much money, and you have to get the goods. You have to get enough to put the story together. And it's always a challenge to like get through a movie, get to the end and go, did I get it all? You know, am I telling the story I wanted to tell? Is it better than what I thought or not? You know, and so it's a, it's a challenge. And you never kind of know till the end. I mean, I have a good idea where it's all going to end up. And I'm always amazed at the end how uh, all the happy accidents happen during a shoot that makes the film better, things that I could have never even thought of. So, so as a storyteller, how old were you when you finally realize hey this is what I want to do I want to tell stories because I think that's I mean I guess that's mm -hmm. as a director as a producer I think that's really kind of how I see it is you're telling a story that you think people would like to see yeah it's interesting you know, as a kid growing up everybody was playing football or working on cars and stuff and you know I sat in front of the TV and watched Sir Graves Gasly and the ghoul and watched all these creature features and these these movies from the you know from King Kong all the way up to uh you know, invasion of the body snatchers, and I'd watch these things and get lost in these little, these new worlds, these stories. You know, and then when the movie was over with, I'd be snapped back to reality. I go, wow, okay. So you could tell a story, you could come up with an idea. So probably, I'm going to say, you know, maybe 11, 11 or 12. I kind of knew that that's where I wanted to go. I didn't know how it was done, and it, you know, 
took me years to figure out how you actually made this stuff work. But as a, as a kid growing up, um, I would always draw comics and stuff and cartoons. So I was always kind of telling stories. And my mother had a, a, a Super 8 movie camera. So I'd always borrow that and learn, basically taught myself how to make a movie. I would shoot stuff and get the film back from Kmart after it came in, you know, then cut it all together and see what worked. So it was really, I knew I wanted to tell stories. I didn't know how, I didn't know what stories to tell, but I always kind of went to the horror, the science fiction, the adventure, the action, you know, Bridge on the River Kwai. I knew we could blow things up or make a giant rubber monster. Those were always the attractive things as a kid. You always kind of went to those. So that was going to be my focus. I'm like, all right, figure out how to, how do you tell a story? What's a story to tell? And how about giant mosquitoes, you know? So it was like trying to get to, get to that. So probably at a really early age. And I think a lot of people who get into either entertainment or, or just different things, you know, uh, movies, music, anything, it kind of starts at an early age. There's something there, whether you know what it is, you know, whether you recognize that that's what you want to do, you're attracted to it. And if you can focus at a young age on something that, that uh, forget about making a million dollars, focus on something that uh, really drives you and inspires you, and then you really get into it and you can figure out a way how to make that your career or your life's work. And that was kind of me, was just trying to figure it out. And then it kind of hit me, I'm like, oh, it's the director. He's the guy behind the scenes. He's telling everybody what to do. He's planning this. He's doing that. I'm like, so I love all the jobs, but get to the director's chair, and I get to do everything. I get to work with the actors. I get to build the sets. I get to do all of it. So it took me a few years, but probably by the time I was 16, 15, 16, a movie called Jaws came out, and got my driver's license, went to the theater and saw Jaws, and I went, wow, Steven Spielberg's like 25, 26 years old, and he's directing these movies. I'm like, that's the job. That's where I'm going, you know? And I thought, oh, well, I got a few years here. By the time I'm 26, I'll be in Hollywood making movies. Well, when I was 36, I started making my first movie. So, you know, you, you have a drive and a goal. It's figuring out how to get there. Because there's no roadmap. There's really no roadmap, you know? You're kind of making it up as you go. So, so I wanted to go back to where you said, you know, you borrowed your mom's 8 mil, you know, Super 8 or whatever. Mm -hmm. The technology today, where you could probably basically make a better movie um, with your cell phone, Absolutely. on your iPad or whatever. Do you ever wonder, man, what could I have done when I was 13, 14 years old with that versus, or did, or did having to do <coughs> stuff a little more creatively and a little more, uh, I guess at that time, that's not old school, but you know, that way and, and build, you know, to make a story, do you think that made you better? At doing this now, if because does that seem so easy to do with your phone that it would make people a little bit lazy? Yeah, you know it's interesting, and I, uh, I I've talked with a lot of people about this because you know when I started, we would shoot film. There was a real magic back then um, to get actually a movie made and out there where people could see. You would have to shoot thirty-five millimeter. You know, all that stuff cost so much money, and and you had to know how to work it. And everybody had a specialty: the cameraman, the lighting, the sound. There was so many specialties involved and so many people that not everybody could do it. So when you actually got a hold of a camera as a kid and shot something, took the, the Super 8 film to Kmart, waited two weeks and got it back, and some of it's in focus or whatever, and you actually cut it and tape it together and run it in a projector, you saw the magic. 
and you built it, right? You could yeah. feel it, and you're yeah. like, that's it. There's magic there. And so this, you strive to, like, well, how do you get to the next level? You know, I need to get money. I need to bring other people in. And what it, folk, what it uh, forced me to do was figure it out. You know, we tend today, we can pick up a cell phone. I can make a movie with my cell phone right now. But the, the two things that are exactly the same, even though you can do that, what's the story you're telling? Are you entertaining somebody? Unfortunately for me today, people will watch our movies on the cell phone, you know, and then they'll put it down and pick it up and watch it again, you know, and they only pay 99 cents for it if they've paid for it. Yeah. Well, you know, when I started and I made my first movie, people would have to go to a theater to see it, or they would have to buy that VHS tape for like $40. <laughs> So you actually could make big money if you could get in and get your movies out there. So the flip side is it was harder to do. But once you got there, you could make money. Today, it's easier to make a movie. It's still harder to entertain people. It's harder to make, you know, because everybody can do it. You've got to cut through the, the noise. Yeah, it's, um, it's the same in music, too. It's the same in any kind of uh, artistic medium almost <clears throat> when it comes to that. Well, we used to, you know, at the Super 8 was, you know, we started out trying to figure, well, how do we, how do we entertain or shock people? Well, we were into all the monsters and effects, so we're like, okay, we love the war movies. How do we do people being shot? So we would, you know, not to give anything away, but, you know, we had firecrackers back in the day. And we figured out how to make squibs, you know, bullets with firecrackers and blood bags. And we taped all over people and wires everywhere. And you know, we would, that's how we made our war pictures, right? It was a, a version of how Hollywood did it. Well, today, I do visual effects as one of my uh, jobs that I do, as my side job is, you know, in the entertainment stuff. And I add bullet hits and muzzle flashes in now in visual effects, whereas back in the day, we'd have to have blanks and pyrotechnics on actors. So it's safer today, and it looks cool and everything, and it's a different skill set. But it's exactly what I did when I started out. I'm actually doing that same thing again now for other people and making a living at it and able to do my own movies too. So yeah, I, I often wonder if, if I had this digital equipment back then, maybe I would have made that first movie at 25, 26 instead of 36. You know? <laughs> I'm gonna cut 10 years out of, the, out of the run. So now do you appreciate how hard it would have been for Spielberg to make that movie Jaws? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, you don't think about it because you watch the movie, but if you've ever been in a boat on the water, I mean, it's hard enough to just make a movie with two people standing in a room talking, right? Because, you know, the, they get, you know the, the dialogue gets messed up or, you know, the sound's off or the camera's out of focus. Be on a boat, a moving boat, and work with actors and crew, and everybody has to hit marks and do things, and you're on an object that does not sit still. So you go, holy cow, how the hell did they do that? You know, without going crazy. And, and the shark it was incredibly difficult. The shark didn't cooperate so famously is what, you know, when you read read about that. It's and made it work. a better movie. Yeah. It yeah, made, because you, did. you didn't see it. Yeah. You know? And it's when that you did. whole less is more thing that if you, and we've talked about, because uh, obviously Grover and I, we, we work with writing scripts mm -hmm. and trying to come up with good stories. And, and a lot of times we get into this debate about... You know, less is more. Mm -hmm. You know, if you sh if you show the creature, if you show the monster too much, it loses its magic. It loses its how scary it is. You become, you, you know, you become used to it. So, well, you have today too. You have the it's kind of the the two schools of thought of like, 
you know, like in Jaws, when I watched it and everything, and the movie was great. And I can tell you to this day, when I, the very first time I saw it at like 16 years old, I could see the, the one or two fake, the shark that looked fake. There's one or two shots in that movie that just jumped out and went, that's, I knew it was a rubber, I knew they made a monster shark and built it out of rubber and fiberglass. And there's one or two shots that looked a little fake to me, but the other ones looked really good. So even though I didn't know how it was all put together, I could still see through it, but the fact that you didn't see it, in my mind, I made the coolest, scariest, yep. biggest damn shark swimming around in that water in my head that was not on screen. So if you can bring an audience into something, and that's kind of goes back to like what I said when you make a movie, or if you're doing music or anything, if you can get the, if you can lull the audience into it, take them down a path, and then put little signposts in there for them to use their imagination. See, because you can't never do what they can do in, in, in somebody's mind. Yeah. But if you can trigger enough people to go down that path, they're going to fill in the gaps and do things you could never do. And then the flip side, too, is, you know, you go to watch the Marvel movies or whatever, and you want to see Iron Man, and you want to see the buildings exploding and everybody fighting and, you know, flipping in slow motion and just, you know, or a Michael Bay movie where everything's blowing up like a ballet and you know you want to see it all or transformers and then there's the other thing with what's you know who's outside the door you know who's what that scratching in the, the shadows <laughs> in your head you, you can never top what's yeah hollywood can't we can't do that but we can trigger the audience to to use their own imagination and fill we it we bring in chris in i yeah, I think speaking of le less is more. <laughs> more or less. Wow. I think that's, that's the longest time I've ever been quiet in my life. <laughs> you know, there's a there's a debate, I think, that, that's out there amongst fans. And I don't know if there's a debate amongst directors and movie makers, and you guys can answer this question. Mm -hmm. And I remember J.J. Abrams was talking about when they brought him in to redo Star Wars. And he had shown his kids, the originals, and then he showed them the, the you know, the next ones. And the, um, and the kids, you know, when they saw the puppet, they were like, oh, it's alive. It really, you know, Yoda's real. real. He's real. And, and so, you know, I, I've heard people debate, and to bring Chris on this, is that there's this new wave maybe of mm -hmm. going back to, hey, we like being able to see the creature. We want the makeup. We want the guy right. in the suit versus the special effects monster. Exactly. So, and Chris, yeah. so you've played monsters, right. and creatures, and things like mm -hmm. that. So now it was being the clown was different because all it is um, it's just putting paint on your face, which is still kind of creepy. You reference in the movie Clown, clown Town. Town, yeah. But being an axe giant and having to wear a full body prosthetic, foam prosthetic latex suit was crazy because. Number one, the film is never shot in sequence. So this was the first movie I was ever doing. And we do this shot, and then we do this shot, and we sit, I'm sitting there scratching my head, and I'm like, this is going to look like crap, because I didn't understand how he was putting it together. <laughs> oh, you've seen some of my other movies. <laughs> <laughs> but when I saw the finished product, it was like, it kind of blew me away. And, uh, um, but being in that foam latex prosthetic suit, and it was 95 degrees, the, during the day, I remember Gary sitting there and saying, we're going to unzip your back, we're going to pack you full of ice. Because when you put the suit on, you can't take it off. They only, only make a couple of them. And those suits are pretty expensive. And so uh, I would sit in front of a fan, 
and I'd have ice packed in my back, and then they need me on set. They'd zip me up and stick me back out in 90, 90 degree weather. Was it a great experience? Yeah. Was it an exhausting experience? I lost about 20 pounds in like three or four days, and I drank, God, how much Gatorade did I drink? I mean, I drank a lot of Gatorade. And the crazy thing is, never went to the restroom because my body would sweat it all out. I was constantly sweating. And, uh, but it was probably one of the best experiences I ever had because if it wasn't for Gary, then I wouldn't have never started my movie career. And it was crazy the way I got started because a friend of a friend by the name of Bud Moffat, which I give a lot of credit to, Gary came up, he came up to, Gary came up to him and asked him if he knew a big guy that had some kind of stamina on that could do a, a monster character for me. And he, Bud recommended me and I went over and I met Gary for the first time and he had me go through a little routine to see if I could fall and do all this stuff. And then he goes, now you got to wear a big monster foam suit and all this and that. And I'm like, yeah, you know what? And my dad was in a nursing home at the time and he was passing and I went and I talked to him. I said, it about the money too. It didn't pay much. <laughs> and, but my dad said, you know, he, he might, and I always remember this. My dad said, give it a try. You never know what it's like. And he goes, sometimes money's not everything. Do something that you wake up in the morning and enjoy doing. It puts a smile on your face. And so I went on set, and like I said, how many days did I work on X Giant? Well, you were well, you in the suit. You were about four days. Four days, actually, almost five. We did right. the extra one, and then you had a, you did a couple. You played cameos. a couple, couple of cameos in right. as a as a, mil, a militia guy. Right, a militia guy, and I was in a bar drinking you, a beer. You too. shot yourself in the movie. <laughs> yeah, I shot myself in the movie, <laughs> which not many actors can say they did that. Exactly. But um, if it wasn't for Gary, I wouldn't be doing what I do now. And and I originally started off. As a, as a stunt guy. And a buddy of mine, Dave Hutchinson, lives out in California. He does lots of stunts. He's in everything. Um, when I had a brain tumor, I had a brain tumor about five years ago, and I couldn't do the wrestling anymore. And I gave him up a call, and we were talking and stuff. And I said, man, I wouldn't mind being trying to do stunts. You know, because it's all safety first, safety first. And you wear harnesses and stuff like that. And the doctor said I couldn't wrestle anymore. And he goes, Chris, you've been a stuntman for 28 years. Professional wrestling is all stunts. Give it a try. So started doing the stunt work, and then I got hooked in with Gary and, and did my first movie. And uh, um, it's been a blessing ever since. I mean, I enjoy, love what I do. For our wrestling fans out there, and there's, <laughs> there's the wrestling fans that are going to wear the T-shirts, and then there's the secret wrestling fans <laughs> that, wear, that wear the robes. <laughs> and, and oh, my God. Can you just, for those listeners out there... Give us some of the, the more famous people that you that you. Yeah, well, well, I wrestled as a character by the name of Johnny Paradise. I was six foot two, one hundred and or two hundred and fifty five pounds of twisted steel and sex appeal. That was my <laughs> ring introduction. I was the cocky, arrogant <laughs> sob that nobody liked. People spit on, threw things at me, all this and that. But I always great. played the bad guys. I played the bad guy, and the bad guy is always the way to go. Now in the movies, I also play the bad guy, and I prefer it. Like in a new movie. It's coming out, which I'll let Gary talk about. Um, I play the Johnny Paradise character just with a different name. Loudmouth, thinks he runs the show, thinks nobody can stand up to him. A bully. Bully, a bully. basically. And that's, that's, and it was like, I didn't really have to learn anything from the part, <laughs> which was kind of nice because the 28 years of being a professional wrestler, that's what I did. I was the loudmouth. I was the show off. I was the guy that thought nobody could beat him, you know? So, so, am I right to, on this? I know you wrestled The Undertaker. Yes. Do you Did you wrestle Ric Flair? Okay, I wrestled The Undertaker, The Nasty Boys. I wrestled Ric Flair. I wrestled Ronnie Garvin. 
I wrestled a guy by the name of Papa Shango, which caught me on fire. The Road um, Warriors. The Road Warriors, the Hart Brothers. Um, I went down to WCW for a while, and I wrestled the Steiner Brothers, Dan Spivey, Sting. So I've wrestled a lot of the big-name guys. Did I win a lot of matches? No. But I was on national television, and, like, being in the WCW, WWF is like playing in the NFL. There's no higher. But I was, like, second or third string guy. I was more of a low-card, mid-card guy. And then eventually I kind of worked my way up where I won a few matches every now and then. Um, I got to show a little bit of what I could do. Um, and it was it was great working with those guys, traveling from town to town, you know. So so the best so the best part about you wrestling for me is is so I've known you ever since we were about freshmen in high school. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> in fact, we so we always play Lexington and, and basketball. In fact, the only time I've got kicked out of a game was during a freshman game because you wanted to wrestle me during the <laughs> basketball game, and we both got tossed. But I think, I don't know, we've been graduated four or five years. and 30. No, no, no. At this time. We've been, there's an illusion here of right here. And, uh, in the shadows. So there used to be, uh, used to be a sporting goods store there in the uh, Richland Mall. And it was, uh, remember, there was like Foot Locker and then the second. Uh, Agler-Davidson? Agler-Davidson. And I'm at Agler-Davidson, and I'm buying a shirt, and I look up, and behind the counter is... Chris Hahn, his picture, he's in a wrestling, and it says Johnny Paradise. Now, you had a much, you said had a much more cooler tagline that you just gave everybody, but on that photo, I remember it said Johnny Paradise, every man's nightmare, every woman's dream. Exactly. So that is the tagline that I, I remember seeing that going, who is this guy kidding? <laughs> I thought it was my brother. My brother used to work at Andrew Davidson, so I had someone behind the scenes put a picture. Of I thought it was every woman's fantasy. Well, it could be that too. Same, whatever. <laughs> Dream, fantasy. Come on, come on. But no, it's all paradise. Um, since I've done my first movie, I uh, I got to work with uh, John Travolta in um, Criminal Activities, where I played his bodyguard. I did some stunt work in that. I got to do a little bit on uh, Captain America. I did a little bit of stunt work on that. Um, and then I just did, recently, I did an episode of House of Cards. I played a um, Secret Service agent. And I got to work with uh, Robin Penwright, which was, right? Is it Robin Penwright? Yeah. Which is... Robin Wright. Robin Wright Penn. Yeah, Sean Penn's ex-wife. And then I just did a movie where um, I got to work with Zac Efron in an extremely wicked and vile that's it. Ted Bundy story, which was cool because it's actually a watch on Netflix. It was yeah. Awesome. yeah, it was it was fun to watch. And then got to work in Gary's movie. I did at Clown Town. I did Inoperable. Um, what was the one that was down in Kentucky? The where um, Old Man with a Gun. Old Man with a Gun with Robert Redford. I got to work one on one with Robert Redford, which was great. I got to have a fight scene with Ewan McGregor and I knock him out, which is cool because I got to knock out Obi Wan Kenobi. You know, so <laughs> I, well, you know the the really cool thing though is is that your career basically it got started because Gary basically did, did things the old school way and put you in a suit where you could have easily made that a digital. Yeah, yeah. And, I'm, and I'm glad you went back to that what yeah. you were talking about earlier, which was um, it, it it really is the thing that audiences. Um, People pick up on this, you know. We know uh, the video games are so prevalent today, and they, you know, we, we played Asteroids back in the day and Pong, right? Well, today it's like they're, they're phenomenal. Everybody knows what they are, and they see it. And I really believe 
when people watch movies, even young kids, they know they're seeing an effect because they, they, it's 24-7 now. And I think as humans, you know, when you, you can connect and you can go, hmm, that's a CG that they're making. You know, they just brought back Robert De Niro. They redid his makeup and everything. They make him look a lot younger. That's not really him, right? They're doing something in effects. So I think by having real people, real tangible monsters, rubber monsters or things on camera, uh, there's nuances that you can't, you know, CG can do everything, right? But boy, oh boy, you watch it and you go, it's too perfect. That's not real. You know, that's not, you'll see something blow up in CG and you go, it's amazing. But it's not real, right? Because there's not a, there's a randomness that just doesn't happen. And I think people can connect with that. So when we were doing Axe Giant, the Wrath of Paul Bunyan, we had a small budget. And the idea is, well, how do we do a giant guy? Well, of course, my first thought was, well, we always used to build miniatures and stuff. Why don't we make the sets smaller and make the guy bigger? Put him in a monster suit. So instead of compositing and putting in this giant monster into the scenes, no, we'll take the people we shoot on green screen and we'll make them small and put them in next to Chris, who's 18, 20 foot tall. And we'll put miniature cabins and miniature set pieces. And we'll marry, we'll use the digital world to marry the images together. But they're two real images putting the, put together. So there is... Two shots in the movie that are CG of Bunyan, you know, and they're very, you know, very quick and very small. Everything else is Chris Hahn in a suit, whether he's falling, jumping, hanging, all that stuff. And I think the audiences connect with that. So I always, I feel like there is a trend to go back to that now. You'll see, uh, I have a lot of friends that do makeup effects. They've been doing it for years. There's a big resurgence about putting makeup on actors, building creatures and monsters and sets and different things. Uh, Ridley Scott does this a lot. He has a lot of, uh, uh, he does the alien movies and whatnot, <clears throat> Gladiator. He has a lot of CG in his movies, but he always pushes to build giant sets and to build as many elements in there when he could easily just do it all in CG. Some of the Marvel movies, you know, there's six people standing in a big giant green screen stage and everything around them is completely recreated. They do that for a lot of stuff, but I think the tendency is to go back now to the beginning, and there's uh, there's a charm about it, and there's a realness about it, and I think people can get reconnected to it. You won't tune out as much. It's easy to tune out when you see this animated thing. You go cartoon. It is. It's not there. You know. But well, when you make eye contact on screen with an actor, an actor looks. You, he, they're thinking it. Right. Well, give you an example. Emotion. Like when I was a kid, one of my favorite movies that I remember. Was I was a big uh, Wolfman fan. I remember the original Lon Chaney mm-hmm. Wolfman, and when he metamorphoses from the human, how they had the hair grow. Sure. And, it, <laughs> and, and yet today it looks silly. But then when you saw him in the full mask yeah. and he moved like a he moved like a human, he was. It was real. And I'll tell you what, it scared me. It scared me because it was horrifying. I was never scared of King Kong or Godzilla or anything like that. Because I'm like, look, they're giant. I could see them coming from miles away. But the Wolfman, Wolf he was the he was the character that, that really scared me. And it was because the makeup was so good. The suit was so good. And he came through that makeup though. Lon Chaney Jr., the actor, came through the makeup. Yeah. And is an interesting. They um, they did a real simple visual effect, special effect that today we even think about, is they had him 
strapped down to a board, and they literally glued hair on him and shot some footage, glued hair on, did coloration, and he kind of froze his face in between, and they just dissolved them all together. So he would he would grimace and he would growl and close his mouth. They'd put some more and he'd growl again and look around. Then he'd stick the rubber nose on. And if you watch it now, you can see it dissolves. But back in the day, we didn't understand what we were seeing. You know, we we knew movies, but we didn't think in terms of those are 24 frames and you could put things over top because you 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 didn't want to know the technology. It was it's like cell phones. How the hell do they work? We don't. I still don't know. But back then, we kind of didn't know, and so you could get lost in the sauce there. But it, the actor came through the makeup. And it is scary because it's tangible. He right. could be there. But like you said, Godzilla. Well, I can see him. Okay, we got about six hours, and that thing is going to be here. Okay, let's load up the car. And go. <laughs> I mean, who, yeah. get, who dies under Godzilla's foot? I mean, it makes no sense, right? Right. If you, you deserve to get crushed by Godzilla <laughs> if you didn't hear him or see him <laughs> two states away. That's very true. Right? right? Sure. So but, I was just watching. But I'm the not human mention. monster, the the, yeah, the, uh, uh, the the human turned into a monster. You know, everybody has that in them where, you know, you could you could you know you could blow up and get mad at someone, or you could attack someone, or you know, you, your emotions. When you saw the Wolfman, you went, oh, he can't control his emotions. He's turning into that, and the animal, the beast, is coming out. I was just watching. I'm not going to plug somebody else's movie, but I was watching a movie on, on sci-fi, and th there's a creature, and it's come, and it's completely CGI, and it's not scary because there's not that you can tell a CGI. That it's just not scary. Whereas if they would have went with somebody in the suit, I think would have been really scary. Yeah, because even though you know Paul Bunyan is. Axe murderer is not real. There's still somebody that played Paul Bunyan axe murderer out right. there right. who's big and can yeah. be mean. And you're just like, man, he could walk through the, he could actually walk through the door, right. you know, at some point. Well, you know, you know and he is. He's right there. In these movies we make too, uh, real quickly in them, um, these genre movies, you know, they're made, you know, whether they're made independently or from a studio or a company. It's all designed to make a profit. And so they crunch the numbers and they go, okay, do we spend thirty-five, dollars $40,000 on a CG monster that'll pass, that's not going to be the greatest, and get it done? Or do we spend $28,000 and make a rubber suit and spend another four or five days on a set? You know, so there's, they weigh the options. I tend to look at it like, because I can do all these visual effects, I go, well, that's not, the, that's not a crutch. That's a Band-Aid. I like it when the visual effects are used, and I don't know they're there, you know? And I think when I started out, we used to do a lot of commercial work, and we'd have to do things on sets where we flew a chair or props and stuff. We'd hang them on wires, and we'd try to have a hidden rod or whatever. And we always had the problem of not seeing it. Well, today, you can pick up a chair, with that, you can have a little pole coming off the back, and we can erase that little pole. Mm -hmm. But the tangible chair is there someone could grab, right? So that's where I, what I like about with the visual effects and things today is to use it as the blend to take the tangible things and get them together, the creature, the monster, whatever it is, and bring them into the scene, or to enhance a few things, not to just be... So you CGI. could actually, you, you could CGI a chair and throw it, but yeah. rather what you'd do is... I'd hang it on a wire. Yeah. Or I'd pick it up, and then just put a, put a green glove on, pick it up from behind, and 
flail it through the air and drop it and then have a little bit of the background and I had to raise my hand. Mm-hmm. You know, like they did in um, Forrest Gump. You know, um, Lieutenant Dan, they put like green screen uh, pantyhose on his legs and they took his legs out to make it look like he didn't have legs. But that's a real actor with a real wheelchair sure. and he gets out of that, gets on that uh, the edge of the boat and jumps into the water and they just took his legs out and you're, you com- you're buying it. And you're like, that's not a CG guy. That's a real actor there. Yeah. To me, that's the best way to use these visual effects is just to help to tell that story, but to not be the story, you know? So tell us, how did you, how did you finally get to Hollywood? How did you go from being the kid with the 8mm? The... No, no I, before you get going, Jason, do you want to talk about your favorite Gary Jones movie? Because I think that's probably his, one of his first, his first uh, oh, that's big that's movies. Awesome. I mean, here's your chance to geek out, Jason, and talk about <laughs> your I've been favorite. Fortunate, and I've had that opportunity to geek out. I've had that opportunity to go to a convention when it was released on DVD, sit with Gary, and actually talk to him through this film under the duress and harassment of being there with Chris Hahn. <laughs> and it, it was, was great. You know, what's the name what's the name of the movie? So Mosquito. Uh, Mosquito. Okay. It is one of the best movies. I recommend that you watch it. It is one of the best I like to call them bug movies. And it was actually they weren't CGI bugs. They were actually models. So it goes back just like the judge That's all the time we have for this week, folks. But tune in next week for the conclusion of this insightful interview with Gary Jones and Chris Hahn. I'm looking forward to it, aren't you? But for now, let me turn you over to your host, Shane Grove, with a word from this week's sponsor. We here from the Shadows Podcast would like to... Welcome a new sponsor this week, Katona Realty. I'm here checking out a house with Agent Danny Holt. Man, this place really looks nice. I wonder where Danny's at. Oh, well, I guess this place is already taken. Um, 1428 Elm Street? Okay, uh, all right. Well, if you want a spectacular house for Halloween, give Danny Holt a call at Katona Realty. Gee, I, I hope this next place at, at Crystal Lake is a whole lot nicer. Ladies and gentlemen, a final word. Please visit us on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash from the shadows podcast. And on our Instagram page at Instagram.com forward slash From the Shadows Podcast. You can visit our webpage at From the Shadows Podcast. Or contribute to our Facebook discussion page called After the Shadows. And tweet us on our Twitter feed at twitter.com forward slash podcast underscore from. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to hearing from you all. Until next time, never shy away from the darkness 
or what may be lurking in the shadows. We are out. <laughs>